This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start when you're in the middle of a story it isn't a story at all but only a confusion a dark roaring a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars but in ourselves. Good luck. Put your seatbelts on cause you're in for a howling ride Cause I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind Following up with your ears but your mind And allow me to take you back and forth through time To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now But won't, further down the line guest is Leanne Domash. She's a psychotherapist in practice in New York City. She's a playwright and author of a wonderful new book, Imagination, Creativity, and Spirituality in Psychotherapy. Welcome to Wonderland. Now, of course, I would 
be more inclined to reverse the titles and have Welcome to Wonderland first. But I imagine because this is more of a professional-level book that for, uh, I guess, publishing purposes, that wouldn't have gone over well. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I did have them reversed, and, you know, different editors preferred it the other way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. I am trying to invite people into Wonderland. So let's begin with Wonderland. How does Wonderland fit into this for you? I know you have some connection with Alice in Wonderland, and Mm -hmm. so let's begin there. Yeah. Well, I loved that book as a child, and it really helped shape me, and I just couldn't get over all the creatures in the book, all the characters she met, and probably somewhere it got me interested in dreams, and I view the unconscious as a wonderland. It's where new ideas come from. It gives us access to innovation, imagination, creativity. I'm a big believer in the value of working with dreams, whether you do it more traditionally using interpretation and associations or you do it according to the technique I go into a lot in the book of embodied imagination, which is non-interpretive but works with the images becoming embodied in the dreamer to create something new. And, you know, I also talk about uncanny communication, which is kind of like a wonderland. It's that sometimes eerie thing that happens between people who are close, where you can sense the other person's thoughts, or you even have a premonition about something that's going to happen to them, or you dream about them, and then it happens. These things happen anecdotally to people, and it certainly happens in psychotherapy. Yes, and we'll go more into that soon. Take us back to the beginning of how you got into doing psychotherapy, and what were your motivations, what was your orientation, and what were you hoping to accomplish? Well, kind of a funny thing is that my family was Orthodox, you know, practice Orthodox Judaism, and I went to Hebrew school for years, and I taught Hebrew school when I was 16, and I had a little girl in my class who seemed very disturbed, and she kept running out of the room and crying all the time, and I just, like, on my own, just picked up the phone, called the mother, and started counseling her, and the little girl got better. And my only training was reading a column in the Ladies' Home Journal by Bruno Bettelheim, who talked to parents about children. And I had been reading that for a few years because my mother got the Ladies' Home Journal delivered. And so that kind of got me started. And then it was a very circuitous route to finally going to graduate school because I actually didn't major in psychology in college, but I would read Freud's case histories on my breaks just because I thought they were fascinating. And then I taught school, and there were these wonderful psychologists in that school system that trained teachers to do psychotherapy. And so I had my first cases there, and then I applied to graduate school and and became a psychotherapist. But I was much more quote, a traditional Freudian therapist at the beginning. And all that has changed, of course, including with the traditional Freudian therapist. Everyone is more open now 
but I've always been interested in the positive aspects of personality development, like creativity, joy, hope, these kinds of things. And I've always thought they were underemphasized in psychology, which tended, of course, to focus on symptoms for good reasons. But I always felt the other was equally important. And I'm not exactly sure how this emphasis on creativity came about, but I have it. And I really wanted to articulate how it is very important in psychotherapy. And I think it's an underemphasized aspect of psychotherapy, including spirituality. I've always felt there was an implicit spirituality in psychotherapy. And that is not discussed very much. There are select authors, of course, like Michael Eigen and others who do discuss it, but it's not common. So how do you bring spirituality and imagination and creativity into your psychotherapy practice? It sounds like some of it has not been particularly well modeled. Yeah, many ways. One is with dream work because you get direct access to unconscious images and associations. And so I have a lot in the book about embodied imagination and how that can be adapted both with artists and scientists to break through blocks in their thinking and how it can also be used with patients who want to alleviate anxiety or depression or I've used it with eating disorders and other things. So that's one way. I sometimes use poetry in my work. I might read a poem to a patient if I think it's on point or They might read me a poem. I've sometimes just read poetry to people who can't pre-associate very easily to loosen them up. I had a patient who posted poems all over her dorm room wall to give her courage and to really validate her feelings. You know, lots of times in therapy, you begin with validating someone's feelings. Well, if you can find a poem that does that, it almost has the same therapeutic effect. All of the plays I wrote have to do with trauma, and we have produced them for audiences that have had patients in the audience, and they've used the play as a springboard for their own thinking, and then the discussion afterwards, they feel free to discuss a particular trauma. So it's a way of using the aesthetic distance of watching the theater performance for them to gain access to their own ideas. But also another thing in terms of spirituality, I try to bring all patients to the extent that I can into what we call a transitional space, which is a meditative space somewhere between reality and fantasy where they can really relax to gain access to their unconscious. You brought up transitional space, working in transitional space in the context of spirituality. How are those connected? Well, it's a space where you really have a chance to listen very deeply to the other person because the boundaries between yourself and the other person are more blurred. You're not two isolated individuals. There's a merging of sorts 
I mean, we always have what we call a dual consciousness because you always know that you're the therapist and you always know you're separate and you're responsible for the therapy, but you're also lowering the boundaries of yourself to really gain access to the other person and listen to them in this very deep way. And that's something similar to the I-Thou relationship that Martin Buber talks about, where the other person is deeply respected and deeply listened to at their very core or their root. So how do you get there? How do you get into that transitional space and invite or get your patient into that space with you? Well, it's kind of an unconscious thing. When I do dream work, I do specific relaxation techniques that are almost hypnotic, and I very actively do that. And sometimes I do some meditation with patients, which, of course, actively does it. But aside from those, you know, more obvious things, I think it's a manner of the therapist First of all, the office, which I know right now we're, you know, we we do everything virtually, but let's pretend that we're in a regular time. The therapy space begins to feel like a protected space to them. So when they keep coming back and they have been listened to, almost the space is a trigger for entering this more meditative state. And in fact, now that we are virtual, everyone is telling me, how much they love my office, which they were not aware of before and never said because, you know, it starts to trigger this meditative state. And then I think it's the manner of the therapist, the way they talk, the way they interact, the way they listen deeply. We leave the outside world outside and they get drawn into a more relaxed, creative, expansive space where they can think of new ideas without fearing judgment. We try to leave all judgment outside to whatever extent we can. I love that notion of creating a conditioned sacred space that builds. Mm -hmm. It just reminded me of many years ago when I was living in a community in San Diego. That was about Mm. 40 some odd years ago. Many of the people in the community were doing various forms of healing work, and I was regularly doing these dry rebirthing or slash primaling sessions. And Mm -hmm. there was one person, you know, after a few sessions, I would just go into this particular room, lie down on the floor, and even before he said anything or started doing anything, my body would start vibrating and and Mm -hmm. shaking, and and I would enter into that dynamic space. Yeah, I think that's what happens with patients. You know, they are conditioned to enter the space after a while, and the therapist is always trying to, without even realizing it, bring them into that space. So I think, you know, when we're successful, that happens. Mm Mm-hmm. And as you write about it, you talk about it as a kind of co-creation of a third space, mm-hmm. a mutual, mutually created space. Right, right. That's sort of like, of a, think of a Venn diagram. We start to overlap and we create something new in the middle. And it's a combination of the two of us 
that maybe can go on a very interesting journey together. And there's a wonderful kind of metaphorical way of talking about this that I just loved. It's the way a mother attends to her newborn mm -hmm. and the space that they enter into together because there's no, there's no language. There's no... Right. There's nothing to fall back on in the ways that adults relate to another human being. So I love that notion of how you brought that into the way you talked about your approach to psychotherapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, they're talking about right and left hemisphere, and of course this is a somewhat simplistic way to look at it, but it's generally true that the right hemisphere is very activated, you know, in the new mother and also in the psychotherapist because it's that area of relationship and intuition and creativity, and it's much more wide-ranging. You can think very, you know, you can make distant associations and so on, and you have to really sense what's going on with the infant, and you have to sense what's going on with the patient, because they're really in the same position as the infant. Lots of times they can't tell you exactly what's wrong. They don't know. It may have happened before they remember they may not have facility with discussing feelings. They may be very closed. They have language, of course, but they don't have feeling language. So you have to use the same skills that a new mother would use. Right. So like when a baby is screaming out of control mm -hmm. and you don't really know what's going on, talk about how you respond to that. You mean with the baby or the yeah. patient? Yeah, start with the baby and then bring well, that to first, the patient. Well, first, I mean, okay, you would you would pick it up right away. I would rub its tummy right away and see if that's what is bothering them. I'd talk to it very gently, and, you know, I would walk around with it. I would sing to it or try to see what's disturbing it. Obviously, hunger, changing the diaper first. That doesn't always do it. But a lot of times when you pick up the baby and you just look at it, and I remember that. I remember that very well. Screaming, screaming. The minute you pick it up and they look at you, they feel so reassured. Everything melts away because the attachment has been restored. Of course, it's much more metaphorical with the patient, but you want to really try to listen very deeply to what they're trying to tell you and catch a hint or two, and don't be afraid to make a mistake. Like, could it be this? Are you kind of concerned about this? It looks like you just had a pain in your back. Can you tell me about that? Because lots of times these things get somaticized. So I have learned to trust my intuition, and sometimes I'll get an image, and I might just tell the patient the image and see if this means anything to them, and sometimes it does, and it unearth something. But I say, if I'm wrong, that's fine. Just tell me. We'll move on. We'll, we'll look at it another way. One of the things I like to model for my patients, and this is what the book is about, is flexibility and adaptability and changing perspective and trying to get new ideas by looking at something in a completely different way. So I'm not afraid to make a mistake 
and I want them to tell me if something I have said doesn't hit them right. Because if it doesn't hit them right, it's wrong. And I know there are therapists who think they're still right, and they may be, but if the patient isn't willing to accept it, it's wrong because the timing is wrong. And so I let them know right away that I like to experiment, I like to think, I want them to think. Sometimes we're going to be wrong, and that's fine. It's a creative act, you know, therapy. And like with all creativity, like writing this book, I rewrote chapters time and time again. You know, it's not that they're wrong, it's just they're in a process of becoming. And we're always in a process of becoming with the patient. And I want to inspire them to try new things and find it exciting and and really stimulate their curiosity about themselves and about other people and about any project they may want to undertake, whether it's having a child, whether it's getting married, whether it's writing a book, painting a painting. All these are projects in a way. So it's this ongoing process of entering creative space. Yeah, that's what I would love it to be. That's what I want it to be. Mm -hmm. Because there's always something new around the corner that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So considering that we all have our own issues, even therapists are human and, Mm -hmm. and have issues, how do you maintain the clarity of your own inner space to do this kind of work with another human being? Mm. Well, this isn't exactly what you asked, but one important aspect of working with a patient is I have found that I've had to perfect is that you merge with them in a way because you really try to see things from their point of view and you totally blur the boundaries between yourself and then the other person. But then you must step back and take perspective and sort of think about what's happened. So in the stepping back, you think about how that patient has affected you and you try to think of whatever issues you're aware of that may be interfering and so on. In other words, there's something called an enactment, which is now a very popular concept in psychotherapy, where patient and therapist get embroiled with each other partly because of the therapist's own issues, but also because of the patient's issues. So how do you get out of an enactment, which is, I think, the question you asked? Well, you get out of an enactment by gaining perspective when you're not with the patient, sort of reflecting. Or sometimes you might have an aha moment when you're not with the patient. And, you know, you come to an insight. And then the enactment is broken you've successfully separated from it and you can talk with the patient productively about it. So, you know, therapy is always this dance between involvement and perspective taking. And, you know, like I can give an example where a patient was talking about her very destructive mother, but who was also kind of seductive. And I just didn't feel anything. I couldn't get into this. Now, that's sort of the beginning of an enactment because there's something about this that is disturbing me. And then I had a dream where it was a mermaid with the head of Joan Crawford, whom I think of as a very cruel mother. 
but the body of the mermaid was very seductive. And I woke up in this cold sweat, and then I immediately thought about the patient, and I understood what she was talking about. So it kind of broke my detachment, which was a kind of beginning of an enactment, and I could understand her, and I could really empathize with her and help her with this. So there are different ways that you can gain perspective. Sometimes it's more logical, where you say you discuss with a colleague something, and I can give an example of that too. Or sometimes you just have an insight on your own, and you say, oh my God, that's what's happening. So it's a two-pronged situation. Yeah, it sounds like both the therapist and the client are, are growing and evolving and expanding their understanding of themselves and each other. Yeah, yeah, because to break an enactment, you have to understand yourself. I had to think about what this kind of a mother meant to me, too, because there's always something in the therapist that's touched off, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you can then analyze it. In other words, it's not something you can totally prevent Mm-hmm. Because everyone has triggers and everyone has issues. But it's a question of whether you can become aware of them enough so that you can then resume helpful contact with the patient. And also survive the enactment or the encounter that, that arises from that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a discipline. I think of it almost like a professional dancer or actor. I mean... There's a discipline involved that requires immersion and perspective taking, and you become better and better at it with practice. And practice means you have to fall on your face sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do, you do. You know, it's funny, I give an example in the book where I had had this six-year-old patient who really, I think, hated her mother in some way because the mother was very she was very controlling and cold and difficult, but she didn't express it really. She painted witches in her drawings, but it was a very sing-song kind of thing. And she somehow unconsciously transmitted this to me, this fear of the mother and this anger at the mother. And I started getting afraid of the mother. And really afraid, and I thought she was going to somehow harm me professionally or complain about me or something. I got so panicked about her. And I finally realized, through talking with a colleague, not from an aha moment, that these were the little girl's feelings and not mine. But this happens. This is another interesting aspect in doing therapy. We call it projective identification, where the patient puts their feelings into you and you start feeling as if they're your feelings. This is a confusing thing and this can be really upsetting. And so I was able to then be released from this and then I saw the mother for parent counseling and it was so weird because the mother was so friendly to me and it was like, oh my God, this is the woman I was afraid of? I mean, it's like, it was so incongruous but I think... My point is that this is another aspect of doing therapy is that the patient can transfer her feelings to you and you have to find some way to understand that and in a sense give them back to the patient. You can use that information with the patient indirectly 
because you have a much greater understanding of what the patient is going through after you felt it yourself. But again, it requires consultation with someone or self-reflection to achieve this. But this is another hazard of doing psychotherapy. I've never heard the term projective identification before. Mm. I mean, we're all familiar with the notion of projection. Yeah. This is a step beyond that. Projection, you think you're projecting your feeling into the other person. But with projective identification, you really want him to feel it. You want to change his behavior. You want to make him think he has those feelings. It's unconscious. Uh She's trying to rid herself of these feelings and put them into you because she couldn't bear it. This sounds more theoretical than something that that I can put my faith in as, as something that's really happening. How can you better rationalize that or justify that as actually happening? Well, you know, it's interesting because some people think it doesn't exist, and certain scientists agree with you with your initial response, especially the inventors of mirror neurons who they say there is no scientific proof for this projective identification. But the thing is, there wasn't any scientific proof for what happens as a result of mirror neurons, but now there is. Mm -hmm. And I think someday there will be scientific proof, but there isn't now. But the thing is that, and I don't know whether therapists just happen to be particularly susceptible to this kind of thing, and that's why they go into therapy, doing therapy in the first place, that they are very porous in a way. But whatever it is, this has happened to me many times where I start to feel Say a person has very low self-esteem, but they want to pretend they're, you know, very competent. They can start to make me feel very incompetent. They can put that feeling of incompetence into me, and I feel it. And I have to then understand that this isn't my feeling. This is their feeling. And this is like an unconscious communication that goes on between people. And, you know, I can only say that I've experienced it, and anecdotally, there's a lot of discussion of this in the literature. But, for example, this group of scientists feel the way you just said, very skeptical that such a thing actually exists. Hmm. But I think that there is a lot of communication that goes on between people that we don't understand the basis of. Yes, you write a lot about unconscious to unconscious communication in the book. And I mean, that's a a huge, huge realm Mm -hmm. of possible interaction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's so much anecdotal evidence about this, and yet there's so much controversy. And Freud studied it. Freud believed in this, even though he was scientific, and he was trying to hide that he agreed with it. But he did, because he thought that would prevent psychoanalysis from being accepted as a scientific endeavor. But, you know, there's just a lot we don't really understand, but we experience. Now, of course, with projection, we have to have some aspect of that experience already within us to be able to take on. Yeah, I think there does have to be something in the therapist that resonates with it. But it's not primarily the therapist. It's more the patient. You know, it's like a key in a lock. 
I mean, there is something that gets triggered in the therapist, but it is very much coming from the patient. Mm-hmm. And so then you have to give it back to the patient, and then that feeling leaves the therapist, even though it's there. The patient still has to trigger it. Mm-hmm. I think I am getting it. I'm getting a sense of that this is a variation or an extension or an expansion of the projection dynamic. Yeah, it is. Yeah, It is an extension of that, and it takes it a step further. Mm-hmm where you're not just seeing it in the other person, but the other person starts to really believe it. Right. You're really taking it on, much like some healers take on the affliction of their patient. Well, yeah, and this is very much what we do on maybe a slightly less seemingly pathological level. We have to take in the misery or whatever it is of the patient or, or the unacceptable ideas or whatever you want to say of the patient that's weighing them down and kind of metabolize them, kind of put them through more of a coherence filter and give it back to them so they can digest it. Right. You have to, as you say, metabolize it and digest it in a way that you can then come up with a language that you can bring back to them that they'll understand. Mm-hmm. And maybe projective identification is one aspect of that because like with this little girl, I experienced the terror of the mother, but once I could give it back to her, I could then talk about the witches that she would draw in a more feeling way and bring more feeling into it with her. So that was an example of that metabolizing. It was just done in a very intense and frightening way. It wasn't done in this calm way, oh, yes, you know, he's feeling this, and let me think about how to present it to him. It was much more embodied and frightening. But whether it's more logical or more crazy-sounding, it's all the same process where you have to take what the patient's feeling and somehow work it through in a way that you can present it to the patient so they can work with it. Mm -hmm. Because right now they can't work with it. It's overwhelming. Right. It's still operating at the unconscious level. Yeah, and too frightening to be made conscious so you can make it more conscious. Right, if you can bring it to your consciousness. Right, and that's what working through the enactment does. Mm -hmm. You bring it to your consciousness. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is fascinating, this porous nature of the relationship between therapists. And there's a line in the book, the birth of the self is composed of a mixture of interchangeable parts of oneself and others. Yeah, as we're talking, I'm just thinking about, like, therapy is really tricky. And, you know, I imagine a therapist could get very overwhelmed if they couldn't take the perspective they need to. And, of course, with beginning therapists, this is an obvious issue, and, you know, we help them within supervision. But I could see an experienced therapist who maybe has stopped getting any consultation with colleagues getting slowly overwhelmed. And I remember a long time ago there was suicide of a therapist, and I just, you know, I'm wondering if this is what, you know, he just... All the souls of his patients were just 
invading him and he didn't know how to take perspective. Yeah, what a disturbing way to lose one's own soul, to have it overwhelmed mm-hmm. by others. Yeah, yeah. All unconsciously. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, you have to be you have to be mindful of this and you have to have a life of your own and you have to have the flexibility to know when to be open and when to be closed. And to have the support of outside perspectives to keep you, yeah, you need, honest you, in you a way. You need colleagues. Yeah. 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 Colleagues who are sympathetic, who will not judge you, but who will work with you as they want to be worked with. And who understand these dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because it's always easier to see it happening to somebody else than to see it happening within ourselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think... I'm guessing, I don't know, I certainly haven't seen any studies like this, but I'm guessing people are attracted to psychotherapy because they do have this porousness. And I've had all different kinds of supervisees. Some are too porous, some are just right, and some aren't porous enough. But I would think people who become interested in psychoanalysis tend to be very porous and need help knowing how to take perspective. And it's a danger. And, you know, I myself think I'm, I'm one of those people who's very porous, and so I've had to learn how to get the support so that I can be closed when I need to and open when I need to. So you're really making yourself vulnerable for the benefit of your clients. Yeah, but of course, the other thing is, it's something that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. I love that porous feeling, Mm -hmm. because you find out so many things. It becomes very interesting. So, yes, you're making yourself vulnerable, but it's also an activity that I find very fascinating. It's the essence of the I-Thou relationship. Yes, yes, and Martin Buber gives that, you know, There's this apocryphal story about him where a student came in and trying to talk to him and he's about to give a lecture and he hardly looks up from his desk and he just perfunctorily answers him and the student went out and committed suicide and he said, you know, that this taught him a very deep lesson that you must listen very deeply to other people. You can't have an I-it relationship, which is what he thought he had with that student but rather you have to have an I-thou relationship, which is a sacred relationship, which is an echo of one's relationship, in his view, with God, Mm. a capital T, Mm I-thou. But you have that sacredness between you and other people, not just with God. And yes, I find that a very meaningful way to relate to people, and that's why I like it. So it gives my life a lot of meaning to have these relationships with my patients. Right. And hopefully we have these kind of relationships with the people in our lives. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. With our friends, with our partners, with our children. Yeah. Right. Since you brought up God, let's talk about Kabbalah and psychotherapy and how it informs Mm -hmm. your approach to psychotherapy and perhaps everything in your life. Yeah, well, I'm fascinated with some of the concepts, and my favorite concept, 
if there is such a thing, is how Kabbalah talks about the void. Mm, me too. That's what piqued my interest. I've always been fascinated by the void. So continue, mm. please. <laughs> yeah. So in the Kabbalah's view of creation, their creation myth, God contracts and creates a void so man can be created. And the word for void in Hebrew is ayin, which means darkness or emptiness, but it also means everything because it's pure potential. So the void is also the pure potential that God has to create man. And so you have to realize that from this emptiness will come something. And, you know, one of my favorite psychoanalysts who wrote in the 30s and the 20s, his name Wilford Dion, he totally mirrors the Kabbalah in his thinking because he says at the beginning of each session, the therapist needs to be in the void because you want to be with the patient. You don't want to remember anything about the patient. You don't want to think about his history. You don't want to think about the dynamics you think he has. You just want to be with him in this emptiness so something can happen. And he is just like the Kabbalah is in search of the truth. He is in search of an absolute truth. But it's not an absolute. It's You're always in the process of looking for the truth. And his daughter said a lot of people misunderstand him because they think he's dogmatic, but he isn't. Searching for the truth is just this ongoing journey. And if you anchor yourself, that is, quote, find the truth, you stop traveling. And he always wants you to be on the journey. So it's, again, a paradox of searching for truth, but you never really find it. And you're always rethinking and discovering and he was one of the first people who talked about the fact that the therapist must take in the disease of the patient, dis-ease, I mean, not disease, illness, but the dis-ease of the patient, metabolize it and give it back to the patient. And also the Kabbalists are always talking about rebirth and transformation and that we're constantly creating we get to create the world, to repair the world. We're always looking to transform ourselves. And the Kabbalists also believe that finding your authentic self is very sacred. And that's how you get close to God, because your authentic self is going to have a lot of godly qualities and bring you closer to God. And they very much want you to find yourself. And as you do that, you will find God. So it's really similar to psychotherapy in that we want you to find your authentic self. And that's a lot of the work of therapy. That's so beautiful and so profound. Yeah, it is very profound. And it's also sometimes very hard job because people have sunk into depression. They don't have any confidence. They don't know their own mind. They don't know what will make them happy. They can't listen to other people. I mean, there's a host of problems that they come with that need to be worked on so they can just really find who they are. And as they find who they are, they can be much better partners to friends, to children, to 
you know, everyone. And this relates directly to the imagination. So Mm -hmm. talk about the importance of imagination in this ever-unfolding creative process and also what you mentioned as the repairing of the world. Well, yeah, that's a concept from Kabbalah that God created the world. He contracted and he sent down his attributes to earth in vessels. All of his attributes like judgment, desire, kindness, etc. All of his godly attributes, he sent them down in vessels. Some of the vessels broke and got attached to lower worlds. And so evil was created because it had the power, but it was used in the wrong way. And our job is to gather up all of this good energy and put it back in the vessels and redeem the world. And we are charged with repairing the world. And of course, you have to use a lot of imagination for that. But in general, your imagination is very much needed to have the flexibility and the openness to work on your dysfunctional patterns and find new ways of behaving and feeling. Basically, we come into therapy with very set patterns that are creating problems for ourselves. Like you might be, you know, for want of a better word, very self-destructive. Even the word used to be masochistic, which is now not a very nice word, but where you are unwittingly, say you're a woman, picking men who abuse you. And how do you change this pattern? It takes a lot of work, a lot of imagination to try new things, to go into your associations, to face why you're doing this. All this takes flexibility. And the catch-22 is someone who is like that has probably been traumatized. Trauma constricts the imagination. So the job in therapy is to work on that so that they feel less constricted and more open, more flexible, and can begin to use metaphor, be less concrete, and try to, instead of being controlled by their unconscious, to dance with their unconscious. Yeah, that's such a fascinating thing about how trauma shuts down the imagination or boxes into its past kind of default mode. Right, right. And, you know, people become very concrete and they can't think metaphorically when they've been traumatized. And imagination is built on the ability to use metaphor. And without that, it's very hard to work on anything, at least the way I work. I mean, there may be approaches that do allow you to be more concrete, but, you know, working psychodynamically with patients, there has to be an ability to use metaphor, and that's why, for example, poetry can be perhaps helpful to kind of pique their curiosity about metaphor. Theater or any of the arts use metaphor. So how does metaphor and poetry and art expand a rigid or concretized imagination, you know, an imagination that, that is mm-hmm. stuck in a rut. Mm. 
because our imagination is at work all the time. It's just a matter whether it's a healthy and flexible imagination. Because mm. we're continually remaking the world, but many of us just continue mm. to remake the same old dysfunctional world over and over and over again. I don't know if I would call that imagination. I might call that a dysfunctional pattern. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ability to see connections, the ability to take perspective, that's how I'm using the term imagination. Yeah, that's a better way of using the term imagination. I was just conflating it with yeah. the fact that we're continually creating the world. And I was using oh, yeah. it in that, that context. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. We are. And so how does it, well, for example, with theater, when I gave a theater presentation about trauma, one was about intergenerational transmission of trauma from the great-grandmother down to the daughter. So there was five generations of matriarchs that met in this play to talk about how trauma was transmitted down through the generations and the different forms it took in each generation. And through this discussion and the telling of each other's dreams, some forgiveness happened between some of the members. And so I saw the audience then, you know, different members who said how they had been traumatized in their own families. I saw how they could start to make connections with the play, and this helped them explore their own trauma more, more metaphorically, because they had the aesthetic distance. It made them feel safer. So that's one example of how that could happen. I think any of these arts give you that aesthetic difference. You could look at a painting of a scene and you could start to associate more because it's not you, but you know, you could feel safe enough. I think it's a question of helping people feel safe enough and not judged so they can begin to think about things in different ways, in new ways, and get out of that rut. Sometimes just pointing out the rut can help move them a little bit. Sometimes giving them the inspiration of a line of poetry can help them. I don't have a formula per se, but it's it's giving them permission. Sometimes I do some meditation with patients to help them get beneath that concrete level. That's something new I've started. I joined a meditation group, and I'm learning all kinds of breaths and things to do. I'm a very big believer is that you must tailor the therapy to the patient. And there's some people for whom verbal therapy, they feel judged because they can't do it that well. But with something like meditation introduced, it's much easier for them. They don't feel as pinned to the wall. You know, others love verbal therapy. And, you know, I have a patient who is a poet, and it's very easy for her to do the therapy. So people have come with all different kinds of minds, too. You know, it's not just the trauma. Some people are not as facile with that. So it's really about finding whatever it takes to help open up a patient's sense of safety and security to be able to look beyond yeah. their safe little comfort zone, no matter how dysfunctional mm-hmm. it is, right. to be able to see whole other realms of possibility. 
Right. I think for a lot of people, that's what it takes. Not for everybody, but if they feel accepted, if they feel valued, if they feel listened to, if they feel respected, they're willing to venture out of their safe, dysfunctional pattern. It also takes a lot of giving them your opinion about what might be going on, you know, interpreting that enactment if it starts to happen. It's many, many things, but I think a lot of people need that basic, deep validation, and then surprising things start to happen. And then there are various tools that can help work with your patients below the conscious level Mm-hmm. so that right. you're bypassing those defense mechanisms that are locked into place above right. ground. Right. I mean, you do that many ways. You can do that by your observations, which are picking up unconscious communications. You know, you get better and better at that. You know, I work a lot that way where I'm getting a sense of things from the patient and what they're saying or just a little turn of phrase or a change in tone of voice, and I try to get to the unconscious level that way. I get to it in dream work a lot. That's a very easy way to get to that level. But yes, you're always looking for the meaning beneath the words, and you're always trying to be aware of the unconscious communication. That's basically the work. And it's hard to put it into words exactly how a therapist does it, but it registers in my unconscious. My guest is Leanne Domash. She's a psychotherapist in practice in New York City. She's a playwright and author of a wonderful new book, Imagination, Creativity, and Spirituality in Psychotherapy. Welcome to Wonderland. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Let's talk more about the notion of entanglement and mm-hmm. those realms of unconscious communication. Mm-hmm. Well, there are many, many levels. Like sometimes a patient is totally distressed, especially when they first start therapy, and I might have an image of a mother rocking a baby. And I will then phrase my communication to her in that way. I will say, this person needs to be picked up and rocked. This person is so distressed. She doesn't even know why she's distressed. But she has to come down first. So that image informs me. There are other times when it's a less pleasant image where the person might make you feel very abandoned or dismissed. You have to understand that feeling and respond to them in a way that's appropriate. Like, this could be a fear on the patient's part of getting involved, a fear on the patient's part that you may see their unconscious, and they don't want you to see it. So 
So you try to work underneath that feeling of being dismissed or abandoned. Or they have maybe felt very abandoned themselves, and they're trying to make you feel that way. So, you, you know, you get entangled. You feel dismissed and abandoned. You feel it in your body. You momentarily forget it's a patient, and you just feel abandoned. That's the entanglement. But then you think about, well, hmm, what does that mean that I feel disabandoned by this patient? You know, what's going on? Is this why he can't form a relationship? He's always abandoning potential partners? How can I relate to him in a way that uses this information knowledgeably so that we can maybe look at this problem more of his and maybe how he makes people feel and how he feels profoundly abandoned? So, you know, there can be nurturing feelings. I mean, I think a lot of what you do as a psychotherapist is you have to allow yourself to feel what the patient is making you feel because this gives you a lot of information about the patient. And it either has to do with the patient's defenses or what they've been through or how they make other people feel. So you gain a tremendous amount of information. So you shouldn't be afraid to feel what the patient is making you feel. But again, the trick is how do you give it back to the patient in a way that's digestible and can move the therapy forward? Not always easy. Yeah, that sounds like quite a challenge and, and one that we deal with in our everyday lives and in our relationships with everybody as well. So I would sure. imagine that you know, as a psychotherapist, that's even more challenging because you have to do that with a number of different people concurrently. Right, right. And each person is different, and each person is telling you a lot about them without saying a word. You know, it's amazing how much. And this has been a challenge to me because sometimes you can think you're crazy because you're getting so many thoughts and feelings about a patient. And it's a question of sifting through what you feel the patient is really creating and what you're creating from your own past. So it takes a lot of reflection. And you, you write about chaos in the healing and creative process. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that's part of your experience in that therapeutic relationship with the client sometimes, is you're experiencing mm-hmm. a kind of relative chaos. Yeah, I am. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I get so many feelings from the patient, and I'm so confused that it feels very chaotic. But again, you know, out of chaos comes order. Chaos is like the void. So I'm not saying you enjoy the chaos, but you do know that it's part of the process. Just like writing this book, many times I felt in chaos. And it's something you have to tolerate because, you know, it is very confusing sometimes what you're trying to say or how you're going to put it or even what the idea even is. And I think this is true with the patient. It's true with almost every creative endeavor. You don't know what it may turn out to be, and you have to tolerate the void, whether it's chaotic or emptiness, and have some faith that if you stick with it, order will come, only then to be followed by new chaos. Mm-hmm. It's like a constant journey. I mean, many 
philosophical systems of transformation talk about this. Alchemy talks about it also. You know, it starts in darkness. It starts in the black. And then it goes through various stages. And you reach the red, which is, you know, a good integration and insight and so on. And then new darkness comes. So it's kind of universal tale of discovery. Mm-hmm. of yeah. realization, of self-realization, of scientific discovery. I mean, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing and chaos that goes on before a discovery is made. Yeah. Yeah, I love the metaphor of the tarot, where each person begins as the naive fool. Yeah, yeah. Well, alchemy is like that, actually, also. It doesn't really begin in darkness. It begins in innocence, mm-hmm. just like the fool. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to darkness. That's also a favorite thing of mine, and I've wanted to, someday when I have time, I'm going to develop my own tarot deck. (laughs) I'm serious. I've done it a little bit, and I just think it's a lot of fun, you know, to do that. It's a beautiful metaphor for life and, you know, the individuation and and maturation process. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, right. Exactly. So there's a lot of despair and doubt in this whole creative and therapeutic process. Yes, there is. There is. And you you can't be afraid of it. I mean, it's not pleasant. I'm not saying I enjoy it, but I understand that it's part of the process. And I enjoy, I want to be confused about a patient because I don't want to have a facile understanding. They're complex. And I want to live in the confusion for a while to come up with something interesting for them. They need to be more confused instead of just doing a rote repetition of what they have always done. And another interesting concept that I talk about in the book, which is, you know, this story from Jeremiah about the potter and his clay Mm. and how, you know, it starts out with the potter making the pot. And, you know, he has in mind what he wants to make, but eventually the pot tells the potter what it wants to be. And this is true of the patient as well. You know, you make your interpretations, you give your insights, you provide a facilitating environment, you bring them into transitional space, but they decide what they're going to become, not you. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the child and the parent. It's sometimes hard to accept, but the child is going to decide. And it may be very different from what you have in mind for them, but you have to respect it. And the same with all relationships. All relationships, hopefully, you allow your partner or your friend to keep becoming who they should be, and you should still be able to relate to them and respect them. Yeah. That's also not always an easy thing to do. Right. It isn't. It isn't. But it doesn't mean that the partner shouldn't also respect you or the child or whatever the adult child. I mean, there has to be mutual respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an ongoing negotiative kind of relationship going on there. It's two-way street, Mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But I think it's like fascinating taking it out of the realm of people and putting it more into creative projects. Like, I did not know what this book would become. I had a general idea of topics and chapters, but it revealed itself to me, in a sense. Yeah, it's really fascinating. 
My father is an artist, and oh, I just yeah. I always find it fascinating how the creative process is like a, a living entity unto itself. Maybe mm-hmm. not even an, an entity, but a living process, like like mm-hmm. Buckminster Fuller's uh, I Seem to Be a Verb kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so what have you learned from your father's process? Is he is he a painter? He's a painter, sculptor, musician. He does a lot of things, builds houses, builds boats. Uh-huh. Throughout his life, he's always had to create mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to also do different things, explore mm-hmm. new territory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also enter into the you know the chaos and anxiety of new realms that he's mm-hmm. unfamiliar with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can really identify with that. I I have such an urge. Also, it's like to me, it's almost a life force. It's like I have to do it. I have to do it. And one of my favorite phrases for raising children is. They have to have optimal frustration, meaning the challenge you give them has to be hard, but it can't be impossible. They shouldn't feel defeated, but you shouldn't be afraid to frustrate your child because then they have to think. And, you know, I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but I don't mean to be cruel to your child. I just mean that they need to be presented with challenges where they really have to rely on their own resources to kind of figure something out. And then, you know, they feel proud, they feel self-esteem, and they are gaining resilience that way. And I myself love those challenges, mm-hmm. you and know, where it's not impossible, but it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. And when we were children, children had a lot more freedom yeah. to roam the world, you know, on their own right. terms. And nowadays, I things know. have changed quite dramatically. I know, I know. It's very hard to do that, and it was much easier for us to have those kinds of experiences. I mean, no one ever thought about safety. I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, and no one ever thought about that. I was out on my bike from age 11 on. No one was worried. And now this would be unheard of. Yeah, well, I grew up in New York City in a not very good neighborhood at all. And I was afraid for my safety, but at the same time, I just had to navigate that for myself Mm -hmm. from a very, Mm -hmm. very early age. So you learned. Mm -hmm. So I learned. And that's a natural kind of unfolding of dealing and relating with the challenges of life. And yeah, Yeah. I I totally agree with you. I think children must have that kind of freedom or challenging relationship with the world, you know, in in a direct way. Right, and I tried to do that myself, and I counsel parents that way because I have come across a number of parents who really feel they're being very loving if they do everything for their children. That's not love. No. Lowering the parents' anxiety because they don't have to watch the child struggle, but the child has to struggle, just like the patient has to endure struggle in order to change. It's not that easy to change. And a lot of upsetting things come to consciousness when you try to change. So, you know, you have to hopefully the therapeutic relationship holds you, contains you so you can endure it. But it takes a certain amount of strength. And that's what you're building in a child. When you allow them to be exposed to frustration, you're building strength. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, relates to 
the therapist-client relationship as well. Yeah, you have to be willing to let the patient struggle. You can't rush in with reassurance too quickly. You can't rush in with interpretations too quickly. You have to let the patient work it through to some extent on their own before you chime in because it's not good to be too omniscient in your manner. It's the patient who's important, not you or your, quote, brilliant interpretation. Sometimes I have supervisees, you know, who say, I said something brilliant or I hope that was a brilliant interpretation. And it's like you have to explain to them, you know, that's not what's important. What's important is is allowing the patient to come to some realization. You shouldn't be center stage here. Right. You can't save them. They have to learn how to take care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So even if you could save them, it wouldn't help for long. No. You know, this is very delicate. This is not easy for anybody. It's not easy for a therapist. It's not easy for a parent. But you just do the best you can with that knowledge. You're not going to be perfect, and that's okay. But you try very hard to let them struggle on their own so they can get stronger. Mm -hmm. It's sort of related to something I talk about in the book. Part of getting stronger is they're relying more and more on their own intuition and their own view of things in a new way. And the esteemed Russian poet Mandelstam said, he hears his poem first as a hum in the ear, and then he translates it into words. And we have to, you know, help the patient develop the strength to really notice that hum in their ear that glimmer of intuition that may lead them down a new path, a new way to do things. That's a fascinating metaphor Mm -hmm. of hearing something, perceiving something that is mysterious, but also something that could be easily overlooked and ignored. Yes, and I want to emphasize that. These new ideas can be very fleeting And we really have to train ourselves to listen for them. The same thing with remembering a dream. It's very fleeting. And when I do dream work, like myself, I get up in the middle of the night and write down the dream because otherwise you're going to lose it. Or you can say it into your phone or whatever. But it's very fleeting, as are these mysterious ideas that might come to you, say, the moment you wake up or when you're in the shower or sometime when you're relaxed. You have to really capture them. Yeah, I'm, I'm so lazy about that. Last night, I had a, mm-hmm. a really fascinating dream, and, and I had this inner struggle, whether to get mm-hmm. up and write it down or to mm-hmm. bask in it and, you know, stay with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a hard time I, with capturing things. Yeah. Well, it can be hard. I think when I do it is when I know I'm doing active dream work with someone, then I do it because, you know, there's an incentive. And Mm. so if you were in therapy, you probably, and you were planning to do dream work, you probably would have gotten up and written it down. Right. Yeah, because it's hard to get up in the middle of the night. (laughs) Right. And uh, I can sympathize with that. But I don't know if I've mentioned that I did do this intensive dream work course with Robert Bosnack for three years. We studied how to do this technique. And now... My class has stayed together, and we meet regularly. 
and we continue to work on each other's dreams. So that's a nice incentive for me to keep doing this work. Mm-hmm. I really want to get into talking about your work with Robert Bosnack and Embodied mm-hmm. Imagination. I'm just wondering if we should do that another time. That would be fine. I love that. Because, you know, you asked me about creativity and when I really got interested in it. But I heard him speak and I realized that he could help me bring more creativity into my life. And that's really why I took the course. So it is a whole saga in and of itself. And entering into the dream realm much more. Much more and differently because I had been trained totally differently and I had to totally change my approach. Yeah. So there's one last question before we Mm -hmm. wrap up. It's actually from the very beginning of the book. You talk about how when you first went to college in your dorm room, you had this amazing artwork Mm -hmm. on the walls of your dorm And Mm -hmm. I would love for you to talk about that and the effect that they had on you. Well, oh, my God. Somebody, I don't know who, the donor, somebody left an incredible collection of modern art to the university to be only used by undergraduates in their dorm room. I couldn't believe it when I got there that such a thing existed. And in fact... I used to visit that collection so much that eventually somebody took a picture of me looking at these paintings and put it in the catalog (laughs) because I, I was amazed. How could this be? And, you know, I had clay, I had Picasso, I had all these, these, it, it was very inspiring because not only did I have a great work of art to look at, but someone actually respected us as 18-year-olds to give us this. And I went back to the University of Chicago years later. They held a reception for parents because my son also went to the University of Chicago. So this was for a parent weekend. And we went to the president of the university's house for a reception. And I asked him, I said, do they still have that collection? And he said, you know, they had to stop doing it because you know, the dorm rooms weren't temperature controlled. So people would open the window, it'd be raining, and it would start to damage the paintings. And now they have them in a very well-controlled environment. He said, but there was never any damage done to the painting by an undergraduate. There was never any theft. For years and years and years, everybody respected this. And I don't know exactly how it affected me, but I think I was I was in awe of having that in my room. I was in a state of awe. It seemed very sacred to me that somebody would entrust me with this. And I just loved it. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was just one of those things that made such a deep impression on me, as did the Roby House, which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, which was right outside my dorm window. And so I would look down on that, and I was also very, very entranced by that. So these two things, I don't know, they they comforted me so much. And they kind of gave me courage in some way to tackle this university, which was very different from my hometown. It was very radical, it seemed. It was very sophisticated. 
it was, you know, steep in the classics. I was not educated, you know, in a sophisticated way before I got there. And I think it helped me. Sounds like it fed your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. It was very imaginative, all of these paintings and and not just the one in my room, but I used to just look through the whole collection a lot, you know, just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I thought I was very fortunate growing up in New York City that, you know, I used to walk around the city a lot on foot, mm-hmm. and I would stop into various museums along the way. Yeah, yeah, I know. This is why I love New York. I live in New York now, and I just love walking, and and the museums are incredible, incredible. I know. It's so inspiring to go, and that always gives me ideas. Every time I go and I listen to one of those wonderful docents talk about something, I I get an, an inspiration. And we don't necessarily have to create art like that, but it can inspire us to find our own way of creating. Oh, right. Yeah. No, I could never create that art, but it speaks to me and it gives me ideas. Mm -hmm. And I love hearing it discussed by the docents. It brings it so alive. Talk more about how art speaks to us, particularly considering your psychotherapy work and your your deeper understanding of how we are affected by these elements. Yeah, well, I think, like, I'll give the example of a Degas exhibit that was at the Museum of Modern Art not too many years ago. They talked about his print work and how, you know, he took chances and he kind of played around with prints and each time he put it through, it was like a new, a new reveal, a new idea, because instead of just going through once, then he would go through several times and get these, what he called after images, and then he would color the after images. And it was just such a creative way of like saying, you know, each session is different, each, you know, what is going to be revealed here. And it just made me feel that, you know, he was trying to capture ways to illuminate what was going on at the time. You know, I think it was smokestacks were, you know, there were different things that were new. And he was trying to adjust his art to portray what was new at the time. And we are always having to adjust our art as psychotherapists. Because we now have very different patients than we did, say, 40 years ago. People are coming in with different problems. People are affected by the environment, by the culture. The culture has totally changed. We view things totally differently. And we have to keep doing this because another idea of mine that I took from a lecture that was given at the University of Chicago to incoming students is that ideas get worn out. Symbols get tired. You can't keep using the same symbols. You have to invent new symbols and new ideas. Otherwise, your field dies. It becomes too rigid. So it's very important to have new ideas, and and artists are constantly exploring new ideas and new ways to do things. And so I think it's very inspirational 
and they're models for us, really. And so patients now seem, for example, many of them, and I, I can't generalize, and this isn't scientific, but many of them have narcissistic issues that were not as prominent years ago. And so, therefore, therapy has developed to deal with this. There are new approaches that are different from a classical way to work. We're also trying to treat a wider variety of patients. Many patients with addictions are now being understood better because we didn't have good techniques for them before. And we have better, not perfect, but we have better techniques. And so we, we just have to keep learning and exploring and expanding and that's what artists do. I always get inspired about my therapeutic work after I visit a museum. Mm -hmm. And I love the notion or the practice of variations on a theme, whether it's in music or any mm -hmm. other creative form. Mm -hmm. Even even in just the way we relate to the... I mean, obviously, that's one of the ongoing creative processes is, is the way we relate to the world around us. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I hope the book will help people with, to just to relate to the world more creatively. Because I think anybody could benefit from reading the book and just think about their different types of imagination, how they can maybe focus on them more to enrich their experience. Yes. I thoroughly, thoroughly loved this book. Thank it's, you. In, in many ways, it's, it's like the book that I would want to write. Or that oh. I would have wanted to write, but fortunately you wrote it, and <laughs> <laughs> so again I'm I'm off the hook. Right. Whew, I don't have to write this, even though there are times when I I really want to write or I want to communicate this, and thankfully somebody else has done it probably better than I would have. Well, when you think about all the hours of all the people that you interviewed, you couldn't do that in five lifetimes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Like, this book took three years of intense work. And, you know, like, I listened to your interview about Olive the Lionheart, that book. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking about the enormous research this man must have done for this book. And it was a fascinating interview. You know, this is so time-consuming. <laughs> yeah, and I just... I've done a couple of interviews with someone more recently who did 12 years of research for his recent book. Oh, my goodness. I know. <laughs> well, I have to say I've, I have so enjoyed talking with you. Oh, I have enjoyed talking with you, and I look forward to our next session. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Mm, well, thank you for everything. So speak to you soon. Yes. And be well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Leanne Domash. She's a psychotherapist in practice in New York City. She's a playwright and author of this wonderful new book we've been talking about, Imagination, Creativity, and Spirituality in Psychotherapy. Welcome to Wonderland. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at SoundCloud.com.
soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.